Well, for our evening, this lesson to start off, you can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. All parents seem to have this basic fear that when their kids grow up, they will go astray. They might get into trouble. They might turn out bad. And Christian parents are no different. In fact, their concern is greater because our faith in Christ is everything to us. We, we know we've been convinced that God is creator, Christ is savior. We want our children to know the same, to come to believe in him and to be saved. And so our concern is even greater that they won't turn out a certain way. And we've said before that parents are not in control of how their children turn out. And that's true in the sense of salvation. We don't control the new birth. We can't make that happen. But I hope you haven't taken that to mean that our efforts as parents are entirely unrelated to how our children turn out. Now, throughout our lessons, we've been establishing quite the contrary, that the efforts of parents are very much related to how their children turn out. Yeah, there are many different shaping influences in the lives of children, but parents are number one. What you do or don't do will have the biggest impact on how your children turn out to be. And even when that comes to salvation, although we do not control the new birth, we can, in a sense, observe that God seems to bless parents who are faithful in his word when it comes to parenting with the salvation of their children more often than not. We do, after all, hold in balance this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. All this goes to say, we as parents need to be responsible. We need to press on, double our efforts, and keep it up while relying constantly on prayer for God's power and strength. Our efforts do matter, and they do make a difference. God, he'll always work out his will. You don't have to worry about that. But as for us, we need to just set our compass to God's revealed will found in the scriptures and just sail full steam ahead towards that. God's pleased by that. God blesses that. So just be encouraged to double your parenting efforts today. And as a good example of how much parenting matters, you have the cautionary tale of Judges 2. You probably know this passage, Exodus. The Exodus generation was a wicked generation. They fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. The generation thereafter, the the wilderness generation or, or the conquest generation, was different. They were faithful. Under the leadership of Joshua, they took the promised land. That was the generation that covenanted alongside Joshua Saying, as he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. They all agreed. They said the same thing. As for, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. They covenanted to seek God first, to remember him, to obey him. And that generation of the conquest did so. They were a largely faithful generation. But they did fail in that one commitment, namely to seek the Lord with their household. That generation failed to pass on the knowledge of the Lord to their children and and really the love of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And there are disastrous consequences. You get that in Judges 2, verses 6 through 12. This is taking us to the end of the conquest. The death of Joshua is being uh, summarized again. We saw that at the end end of Joshua, but it's repeated here at the beginning of Judges. Look what it says, though, regarding the next generation. Judges 2, verses 6 through 12. It says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, uh, the sons of Israel, went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him 
in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hell country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. It says in verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. It's also stunning when we read this, when we reflect on this, just one generation later, they forgot the Lord. They didn't even know the Lord. And there's pretty obvious implication, like their parents did not tell them. They did not adequately pass on the knowledge of the Lord. As God told them to do in the Torah, back in Deuteronomy 6, to to faithfully teach your children, instruct them in the way with your, uh, really at all times, to pass on the knowledge of the Lord. Also, you think of all the miracles that God performed, the wonders he performed for the Exodus generation and the wilderness generation, which these elders, these fathers had witnessed. But even still, they, they failed to pass on the knowledge of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the love of the Lord to their children. And really, that, that makes their generation's faithfulness, I wouldn't say all for naught, but in many ways, uh, futile for the sake of the future of Israel. And the result thereafter were many generations of unbelief and idolatry because a a whole generation, in a sense, was forsaken, not raised up in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And like we said, disastrous consequences abounded. You can think about America today. America has never purely been a Christian nation and not really even perfectly close to a, a Christian nation. But it was founded with a rich Christian heritage and some ideals. You wouldn't know that today by looking at the lay of the land. The values, morals, and faith of the nation have changed so much away from the Lord. It hasn't happened all in one generation because there are still many faithful parents in the land who are, they are faithfully passing on the knowledge of the Lord to their children, passing along the faith, raising them in the fear of the Lord. Yes, but I think we'd agree each generation there are fewer and fewer and fewer eventually has a cascading effect. We will see how that goes on to affect our nation and the church in our nation. It feels like a a heavy downhill train that can't be stopped. But what do we do about this? All we can really say is, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We we will do what is right. We're not going to participate in the decline. To the contrary, we need to double our efforts to be found faithful and just to parent according to God's revealed will Trusting him for the results, but working hard at at the tasks, at at, at doing what he has set before us as parents seeking to be faithful. And that's what we're after. Speaking of tasks, we've been studying the previous two lessons here on on Sunday nights, the tasks of biblical parenting. Spent the first half of our time together really seeking to uncover the biblical principles of parenting, just laying the foundation of, of, well, the principles. And then we turned a corner and started looking at the, the practices of biblical parenting. What does God expect us to actually do? And even practically, we found this is nicely summarized in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Again, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
a couple imperatives there. And so we spent one, week, uh, one whole week exploring further that the parenting task of instruction. How do we bring up our kids in the instruction of the Lord? And last time we spent the whole week uh, exploring further the biblical task of discipline. How do we raise them up in the discipline of the Lord? And I explored both of those. It's just a crash course. This is no mean, by, by no means exhaustive. But hopefully with our time, we, we've given you a solid footing on how to implement these two primary tasks of biblical parenting in your own home. But today we're going to do this one more time, this time with the third task of biblical parenting that's found in this verse. But it's a little bit different because this one is in the negative. It's all about what not to do, about what to avoid so that your, your kids won't turn out the way you, you fear. And it's very important to discuss and study what to avoid. We can spend all this time studying our active role, and we do spend a lot of time there, very focused on how do we instruct them, how do we discipline them. But, and you could do all that very, very well, but if we have, as parents, get other things wrong or do other things wrong, we can really set them back and undo our best efforts. You don't want a, a one-step-forward, two-step-back situation. And so as parents, you need to also become aware of some of the main pitfalls in parenting, ways you can uh, halt your progress and, and defeat your own best efforts. You must be diligent to understand these and then avoid them. And so we're going to study them tonight. I guess we can call this the, the avoidances of biblical parenting, that which we need to avoid, that which we must not do. And the starting place here is that negative imperative in Ephesians 6, 4. It's really the first thing he tells them before he tells them this command to raise up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He actually first gives them a negative imperative. He says uh, in Ephesians 6, 4, do not provoke your children to anger. And let's just begin by understanding what that means. Do not provoke your children to anger, the negative task, the avoidance of biblical parenting. Provoked anger is all just one word in the Greek. It's a word orgizo, which means to anger, to, to incite, but it's intensified by the word para, which, which means you're moving someone towards something. So it's talking about moving someone to anger. You're moving someone to a place of anger or irritation, resentment, bitterness. This is talking about putting a, a type of stumbling block in the path of your kids where you're, you're, you're goading them to anger or irritation or resentment. Interestingly, the exact same word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for Judges 2.12, which we just read, which talks about how Israel provoked God to anger. There it was the children provoking the Father, God the Father, to anger by their sin. When God is provoked to anger, we can be assured it's always a righteous anger. His anger is always righteous and just and holy. When it's the other way around, when it's parents provoking their children to anger, it's, it's often most often not righteous anger that results. We might incite our kids to unrighteous anger. Nevertheless, the prohibition for parents is not to needlessly put them in such a state. This can happen through the parents' own sin and unrighteousness, or it can even not just happen through carelessness. But still, you need to, to take care that you're not inciting your kids or exasperating them. And speaking of exasperating, that, that's found in the parallel prohibition in Colossians 3.21. Once again, Ephesians, Colossians are very parallel. And, and Paul gives a, a similar 
a command to parents over in Colossians 3.21. These do run essentially completely parallel, but it's worth looking at Colossians 3.21 as it gives us a little bit of a nuance in understanding this negative imperative. Colossians 3.21, there he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Here, parents, fathers primarily, but this does, of course, apply to both parents. He says in the negative, do not exasperate your children. It's really an important correction. The word exasperate here, erethizo, means to, very similar, to stir, to anger, to provoke, to, to annoy. But the idea here is it's not just being annoying to your kids, although you shouldn't do that. And it's not even as simple as provoking them to anger. This really carries the idea of, of frustration and discouragement. What's beneficial here is that Paul modifies and, and therefore explains more what he means as he adds, so that they will not lose heart. That word lose heart is also just one word in the Greek. It's the word for passion with a negative in the front, meaning without passion or without heart. It speaks of someone who's deflated. Our word for that is disheartened or dispirited, discouraged. This is a person who's so down, they just, they just give up. And so the picture is pretty clear. You've got a child who's become disheartened or discouraged in spirit, maybe to the degree that they don't even bother trying to please their parents anymore. It just seems impossible. Nothing they do is good enough. No amount of obedience is enough, short of perfection, but they'll never be perfect. It's a lost cause, and the, the child gives up even trying. It's pointless. He's exasperated. But you see, such a condition is actually brought on in large part by the parents. The parents have done something or ruled in such a way so as not to encourage and build up the child, even through correction. They're not encouraging and building up, but discouraging and tearing down. And uh, that's not good. You, You don't want that. You don't want to break the spirit of your child in such a way. That's what we're talking about by this exasperation. So you put them together, like I said, they run parallel, but they help round out the negative imperative, the negative task of parenting in a sense, which is to not provoke them to anger, to not exasperate them. The challenge with these passages is that they're so brief. Paul is giving some bullet point imperatives to the churches here. He doesn't go take them and run with them. He doesn't tell us exactly what it looks like. To exasperated kid he doesn't give us five examples. He just says, don't do it. Leaves it to the reader, guided by the Spirit, to really flesh out the various ways you, you can exasperate your kids and then to not do that. I'm sure if you were just forced to stop and sit and think for a little while, you could come up with your own list of ways we can incite our children to anger, exasperate them, dishearten them. And you would be good to do so, but with the rest of our time tonight, I want to help you with that. Our goal is just to take further this, the negative task of biblical parenting, the avoidances, and, and reflect on them that we might, well, avoid them. Let's see if we can apply some biblical wisdom to this issue. That's what we're left to do. And then just discern some of the main ways children can be exasperated by their parents and lose heart so that it's in the front of our minds, it's being brought to the surface, we can examine ourselves, and if needed, change to to make sure we're not falling into these these pitfalls. 
For the sake of just this crash course, I'm, I'm just going to give you five big ways parents can exasperate their children. If you want to take this and run with it, you can. And there's, there's many more ways, I would say. And in fact, a, a good resource I could just on the side point you to. John MacArthur's book, What the Bible Says About Parenting, it's not always the most practical book, but if you're looking for a solid you know, Bible study on parenting, it's a great resource. And it's chapter six, but one of his chapters, he gives a long, detailed list of many ways parents can exasperate their children. You can, like I said, take this and run with it. For our sake, for our time, though, we're just going to look at five, and you could roughly say maybe that the top five, at least five that really came and stuck out to my mind, just reflecting on, on God's wisdom, applying it to our children. So let, let's go over these and think on how we can well, avoid exasperating our children in these ways. The first I would suggest to you is overprotection. Overprotection. I'm going to spend a little extra time on this first one because I think it's actually a pretty big one, pretty big way we can all fall into this trap. We have a natural desire to protect our children, and it is good, it's right, it's part of our job. We are to protect them from all the dangers of this world, and there are many. Especially brand new parents will go to great lengths to physically protect their children. They'll buy those little plastic outlet inserts and scatter them throughout their house. We're still finding them all over the place. We never really use them that much, but they always turn up. If you're not a parent, you'll know what that is in a couple years. We install baby gates. We put child locks on the cabinets, especially the one under the sink where we have all the poison in the house, like bleach and things that will kill you if you drink it. That makes sense. That's appropriate protection uh, measures. But such protection over time can evolve into a form of overprotection by well-meaning parents. This happens typically when fear just captures their mind and they're fear-driven. Fear starts driving the train and making all the decisions. When your decisions are all based on fear, you might have a problem. But as a result, they, they form this little bubble of protection for their kids And it's a very tiny bubble. It's well-regulated what gets in. It's just a small little bubble. It's meant with good intentions to protect their children, but it can get a little too tight in there. There could be physical overprotection, but they won't let their kids participate in anything that involves any risk. Literally and metaphorically, they're holding their kids' hands until they turn 18. They won't let them walk anywhere alone, do anything alone. Even as teens, they're just never trusted alone from a class trip to a weekend with in-laws, they, they won't let them out of their sight for fear of the worst. This can be social overprotection. They're ruled by this fear that their peers might helplessly corrupt them. And so they socially isolate their kids. They restrict them to just one or two of like the most like-minded people they could possibly find. Even then, though, the mother hen keeps her wing over her chicks at all times. It's like these parents don't want their kids even talking to other human beings for fear they might be corrupted. There's cultural overprotection. This is kind of the throw the baby out with the bathwater approach to the culture. And we all know there's tons of wrong in the culture. But some parents fear that if they let any of the culture in, a tidal wave will follow and they just won't be able to stop it. And it'll sweep away their children. And so there's just a total blackout on all things from the culture. TV, movies, books, even things that are not evil. You should obviously black out that which is evil. But like I said, this is a baby with the bathwater approach. And lastly, a type of spiritual overprotection driven by the fear that 
If their kids are exposed to other beliefs, other worldviews, other religions, they might sow seeds of doubt in their mind. And so they cut them off from all unbelievers and all those from other religions. You know, that one relative who believes differently, they're never allowed to really spend time with or talk to. They even go as far as a second degree of separation. That's where, you know, they might see other Christians at the church who have a bigger bubble than them. but They're perceived as too worldly, so they cut them out as well. Don't get me wrong. Balance is needed here. This is a, a very wicked world, and we live in a very corrupt culture. So I'm not at all arguing against legitimate forms of protecting our kids, and that is for sure going to require more than it did 50 years ago. Of course. Some protection is needed, especially when they're very young. There should definitely be, definitely be limits on their exposure to this wicked world. You don't want to be reckless. For example, this very moment, there are countless beams of electromagnetic radiation permeating every square inch of your house. And with the right device, you can receive what they're sending, a phone, a, a laptop. And if you give kids access to that, they have access to literally everything under the sun. A lot of that content, of course, is designed to corrupt the young. It's not with their best intentions in mind. One day, they're going to have the freedom to do what they want, look at what they want. Before that day comes, though, we want to shepherd their hearts as best we can and prepare them. And so it's only right to restrict some of that freedom and protect them from the deceitfulness of sin until they're old enough to make their own decisions. Of course, so we're not arguing against protection. We're talking about an overprotection, which I think you could just define as ultimately never trusting your children to make their own decisions. Never trusting your children to make their own decisions. You're so afraid of what might happen if you just let them live. And plain and simple, you just don't trust them to make right decisions. And that would be evidenced by your, your total control over their lives. But if you think on this a little bit, again, it's well-intentioned. Almost always, I think, well-intentioned. But the more you think on it, the more you might realize that that is going to eventually exasperate your children. They will catch on that they're never trusted. As they age, it's, it's appropriate for them to grow in independence. They're individuals. We are trying to prepare them to live in this world. We're not always going to be around to protect them. They're going to have to make decisions. We want them to make good and right decisions. But if you constantly stifle them and restrict them, even in an effort to protect them, the little bubble you create for them will eventually run out of air and just suffocate them. Also, they will learn that no amount of obedience no evidence of responsibility will ever be enough to gain your trust. It is true. Trust needs to be earned. And maybe you have a, an older child who is not trustworthy, so you don't offer them freedom. That's not wrong. But a child who is, is striving with obedience and, and trying to earn trust it is proving themselves responsible, but still gains no freedom or uh, no, no relaxing of, of the the straitjacket put on them, they'll learn that, that nothing they ever do works. The inevitable out outcome is just despair or rebellion or both. They'll either sink into despair, losing all hope that, that they'll be free, so to speak, or they'll just outright rebel to emancipate themselves. Usually, these are the kids who rebel in college. They go from this little bubble to the whole world overnight, and when it comes to their exposure, it's like sensory overload. 
If you've ever been like freezing cold in the snow and then you jump into a hot tub, just the shock. The shock will be too much for them, that they're overexposed. They don't know how to handle it. That sounds like a child who's not been prepared to face the world, which is the inevitable outcome of growing up. Instead, you would do well to allow your children more freedom over time as they prove themselves trustworthy. I can say just very roughly speaking, you could say, you know, like the 8 to 12-year-old range is the time to really amp up their responsibility in life. We're talking things like serious chores, serious duties, serious responsibilities. You still want them to enjoy their childhood, but with greater freedom comes greater responsibility. Let them, under your shepherding, prove their responsibility, prove their trustworthiness. Then the, the teenage years, little by little, little, let them start making more of their own life decisions. Let them have a little more freedom and just see what they do with it. Even if they stumble and make a terrible decision, at least it's done when they're still in your home that you can respond to it, you can shepherd them through it, you can help them learn from it, make a better decision the next time. And that's a big issue here. Some parents are so driven by fear that, that they fail to see the great opportunity freedom presents. Because look, as a shepherd, it behooves you to give your children more freedom as they get older. If you're thinking like a shepherd, that, that's a valuable thing, to give them more freedom as they get older. Why? Already, some of you are thinking that sounds terrifying. But as a shepherd, how else will you really learn what's in their heart? I don't need to see what my teenage kids are like when I'm making all of their decisions for them because they're going to look just like me. But who are they? What's in their heart? Do they really follow the Lord? How wise are they? Are they able to make good decisions? I don't know. I can only tell by seeing the decisions they make when they're not controlled by external circumstances or, or the parental straitjacket. Yeah, they might make terrible decisions. But that's why you start with very low stakes decisions. You start with things that aren't going to wreck their life if they get things wrong. You start small, but you, you have to loosen the leash, see what they do, and then you can respond accordingly as a shepherd. And trust me, you don't want the first moment, you don't want their first moment of freedom to be when they're away at college. Because then you will have little to no more opportunities to respond to all the terrible decisions that, uh, that they're going to make. Or, or to the trials and temptations of life. You can't isolate and protect your kids forever. They will eventually be exposed to our culture and the wicked world out there. That's going to happen, but far better that they get measured exposure while they're under your, your loving, your watchful care, that you can respond appropriately and just help them. Because ultimately, they're, they're going to have to stand before God for their own lives. And also, don't forget that not all temptation comes from external sources. Don't think that the world outside the bubble is their biggest problem. The biggest problem is inside the bubble. It's inside them. It's their own heart. You can't isolate them from their own sinful flesh. They, they carry around with them the biggest problem, the flesh that we all have. But you have to equip them to handle sin and temptation within and without during your active parenting years. Overprotection does not accomplish this, but it can be a, a quick way, maybe a slow way, but an eventual way 
to exasperate your children. So think on that more. Beware overprotection. Number two, we must move on. A little more time on that first one. Like I said, I think it's, I think it's a big one amongst conservative Christian circles to beware of. Secondly, though, moving on, uh, favoritism. Favoritism. I'm sure you can all see how that would exasperate children. I have to say, though, in my observation, I don't see this a ton. I, I see a lot of parents going to great lengths to not play favorites among their kids. That's a good thing. But perhaps that's because so many parents know the sting of favoritism from their own childhood, that they were perhaps victims of favoritism. Children come programmed needing and desiring their parents' love and affection. When, when they don't get it, when they don't get this, this ultimate security that they're meant to have, I mean, bad things happen. Things break. Things go awry inside of them. You don't want that. And that includes when, when love for one child is withheld and redirected to another child. That's not only going to generate hurt and sorrow in the neglected child, but it's going to create in their own heart a resentment and a bitterness toward their siblings. I mean, just think, of course, that the best example, Jacob and Esau, right? Rebecca and Isaac had twins, Genesis 25, but they both, it wasn't just Jacob, they both played favorites. Genesis 25, 28 says Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So Esau was like a, a young manly hunter, and so his father favored him, but but Jacob was like a mama's boy, basically. <laughs> this favoritism, though, drove a wedge between these two brothers. It set them against their parents. It set them against one another. Jacob deceived his own father over it and then later fled for his life from Esau. To make matters worse, realize that the descendants of Jacob became the Israelites. The, the descendants of Esau became the Edomites. They became enemies for centuries. So much blood was spilt between these two. All, I guess you could say, stemming back from favoritism. Really, this parental favoritism can be construed as a subset of the sin of partiality from James chapter 2. Parents are to unconditionally love their children and, and to love them the same, therefore. But if your love and affection and attention are not dealt out roughly equally, your children will pick up on it eventually. And as Colossians 3 says, that they'll lose heart. I know siblings who were raised with total favoritism. They could testify. I'm talking like the way Cinderella's stepmother treated her versus the stepsisters, like black and white. One child could do no wrong. The other child could do no right. On one was heaped tons of affection and attention. The other neglect and, and ignored. And this separated the siblings until they realized it wasn't their fault. It was their parents' fault, really, that this wedge was came, come from their parents. But it set them against their parents as well. One was hugely exasperated and, defle uh, and deflated uh, to, to a pretty serious extent. As a counterpoint here, I can share a little, you might say, personal philosophy just for our, our family culture. You know, one thing I, I don't like to do with our kids, uh, almost as an aside, is make them compete against one another too much. I don't like to set them against one another as adversaries too much. We like to remind them, we're all on the same team in our family. You can compete against other kids and, and crush them. No. 
But our family, we're, we're a team. We try and foster a family oneness in our, in our family culture. At the same time, though, our kids do need individual attention. They, they want it. The latest thing right now is they want, you know, sleepovers with mom and dad and like a game night where it's just them and mom and dad staying up late. But even here, we try and make things even. If one kid gets it, the others will get one uh, of their own pretty soon to follow. We, we need to make an effort to favor our kids. We want to show them each favor. Just make sure you're not doing it at the expense of favoring the others. There's enough favor to go around. Show that equal love to your children. Thirdly here, to keep pressing on, thirdly would be neglect. Neglect. And that's going to be akin to favoritism. It's just that instead of neglecting one child and showing favor to another child, this is where you you neglect one child and show favor to just something else. You're more preoccupied with, with work or a hobby or anything else. And your child or children get the short end of the stick. They are neglected. This will have a a similar effect on them that they will quickly learn that they're they're just not that important to you. That they they don't please you that much. Discouragement and exasperation are sure to follow. King David exercised both favoritism and neglect in his parenting. It didn't work out so well for him. Think of Absalom. His son Absalom avenged his sister Tamar, by killing his half-brother Amnon, another son of David. This greatly grieved David. Absalom went into exile. Eventually, though, David recalled Absalom. Technically, according to the law, his brother Amnon deserved a death penalty for his great crime. David pardoned him. But for two years thereafter, he completely neglected and ignored Absalom, his son. He's there in Jerusalem with him, but he wouldn't let him even see his face for two years, just like neglect to the nth degree. He showed him no attention or affection. In this case, in reality, David was still bitter towards him and had not actually pardoned and forgiven him. David's actions spoke louder than his words, and he he proved to Absalom that he did not really care for him. And the result over time was what? Absalom's like a textbook case of exasperation. And he was very much provoked to anger. Absalom let his anger boil over into rebellion. I'm not talking the type of rebellion like storm off to your room. I'm talking like literal rebellion, like trying to overthrow David, his father, and kill him. I trust you won't face those consequences, but still, you don't want to provoke your children to bitterness, anger, or resentment through neglect. You have to recall that you as the parents are God's agents to your children, which means in, in, in many respects, you are representing God to your children. You're not God, of course, but you, you're their almost mediator as, as their parents. You are representing God to them. God wants you to reflect his nature to your children. We're called to be, be imitators of God. But how many people grew up with this skewed view of God because of their parents. I talk to so many people who just have a hard time actually believing, genuinely believing that their heavenly father cares for them. It becomes pretty clear that the reason they're that way is because their earthly father did not care for them. They have a hard time with this father figure because of their own neglect. Your children are worth your time. 
Yes, you need to rest. You need to take care of yourself. Enjoy life. But your children are, at the end of the day, worth more than your entertainment or hobby or workout or even job. You'll have to strike that balance yourself. Just make sure you're not falling into the third trap of neglect. And by way of, again, personal experience, I can add that our children don't seem to need this 24-7 constant attention and affection. They're, They're content to play by themselves, do their own things, but at the same time, we're quite intentional in just spending time with them, giving them quantity and quality time. And I think that's led them to be just very secure, knowing that their parents care for them and care about them. I think part of that comes in never seeing them as an unwanted intrusion. Bet a lot of you got a taste of this now that you're, you're working from home and perhaps you're home with your kids, and so the opportunities for them to intrude upon you or interrupt you are more plentiful. I think one thing I try and do, by far not perfect, but to, to give them attention whenever they seek it. That's because, you know, even maturing as a pastor, I've heard so many stories from other pastors' kids who would relate how growing up they said, you know, their dad was always too busy for them. Whenever they wanted to show him something or do something with him, he just kind of brushed them aside because he was too busy pastoring, doing the Lord's work, too busy. And I was, that was struck a chord with me. And even before we had kids, I'm like, I don't, and I ever want that to be me. So I happily give my kids a, the full right of interruption. And best I can, I try not to see it as an inconvenience, but it's a hidden blessing. The fact that they still want to spend time with me. They still want to show me things. They still want to do things. Won't always be that way. I think we all know that. Won't always be that way. They'll grow up. But to appreciate that and just give them your time, your attention. Show interest in their interests. Spend quantity and quality time with them. Just assure them of your care, concern, and love. We're going to include two more for tonight. So number four, a fourth way, a fourth pitfall in exasperating your kids or a way to exasperate them. Uh, Unrealistic goals. Unrealistic goals. I think it was our first lesson in this uh, parenting crash course that we contrasted the goals of biblical parenting with the goals of parenting among those in the world. And in the world, a lot of parenting is driven by the goal of success. Parents just want their kids to succeed. That's what they're after. And the parents are the ones defining success. That may be defined as financial success. They just, they desperately want their kids to strike it rich That might be defined and related to educational success. They they have to go to the best college. It could be relational success. They want them to marry the perfect person very quickly and give them grandchildren. They may be defined as achievement success. That they just, whatever they do, sports, music, they just, they have to be the best at whatever they do. It's not wrong to encourage your children to be excellent in all that they do. And it's, it's natural to want our kids to have a measure of worldly success. But we have to know that that's not the most important thing. We know that what matters most is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, and then trust God to add the comforts of the world as he sees fit. That's in his hands. But our, our primary goals for our kids are, are going to be spiritual goals. Even these, though, are tempered in our trust in God's sovereignty. 
But if you fall into the trap of placing on your children unrealistic worldly goals, if you just add to them tons of unnecessary pressure that are generated by your wants and desires and expectations, not God's, you're going to give them a heavy burden on their shoulders that they're not meant to bear, they likely cannot bear. And so how do you expect them to respond to all that pressure? Especially since they didn't choose this. They don't necessarily want this. Chances are they don't want this. How do you expect them to respond? This is, this is your will. It's not really God's will. It's just what you want for them. It's not their will. Why should they suffer so much for your goals? In time, they'll, they'll crack. They'll be exasperated. They'll just crush under the load or they'll rebel and just throw it off because they can't stand your pressure on them any longer. Beware of this. In addition, I would add a warning here not to sacrifice the spiritual growth and development of your children for these worldly goals. All too many parents will purposely allow and even lead their children over a long stretch of time to skip church for the pursuit of athletic or academic goals. Some might even discourage them from studying the Bible and just say, just just study your books or study that music lesson or practice your sport. I'm not advocating that you just pull your kids from all extracurricular activities and lock them in a room, make them study the Bible all day. Of course not. But just remember the wisdom of 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, where he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That, that's a perfect way to think of these goals for our children. These worldly goals are not wrong. Bodily discipline, not wrong. It's just in the grand scheme of things, it's only of little profit. These, these earthly goals, they're not wrong. They're just, in the, in the eternal scale, they're just of little profit. Far better to discipline yourself and, and promote in your kids godliness. That's profitable for this life and the life to come. Lastly here to finish up, number five is excessive discipline. Excessive discipline, a way to, to dishearten them, to dispirit them, to exasperate them. This last one needs to be considered. Last week, we spent all of our time understanding the nature of discipline biblically and how to implement it. And above all, we were talking about, especially when you're training younger children, a consistency matters. That's one of the top things. All too many parents completely just tolerate the disobedience and rebellion of their children, God calls us to do otherwise, to meet their rebellion with the rod. If you don't do this consistently, you're in effect stumbling your kids. You're not helping them deal with and confront their sin and their sin nature. You're basically handing them over to the deceiving and hardening effects of sin. And so we learn that the need for the consistent use of the rod, discipline, correction, training, and righteousness. Now, that being said, There is such a thing as discipline overload, where you're going beyond simply correcting them and you become overbearing. This can happen physically, where, for example, you you start going beyond a, a little spank meant to associate sin with a sting, and you actually start hurting your children. You're using too much force. This can also happen emotionally, where you use anger or rage to bully them into submission. 
This can happen verbally where you use stinging or sharp words to, to hurt them, to rebuke them. Or this can happen when you, when you discipline in the wrong manner. Maybe you implement something like spanking, but you do so in the wrong manner. There's no love in it. There's no shepherding conversations before or after. It's an anger. It's just a punishment. Or maybe you implement other forms of discipline, but their goal is just to punish, not to correct. Remember we said last time, all discipline needs to be corrective, not just punitive. We're not trying to do something against them. We're trying to do something for them, to correct them. But if your discipline has become just purely punitive, it's laying down wrath and punishment, you're going to crush them. They will find no hope, no grace, only law. And these are all ways you can go wrong in discipline. And like Colossians 3 says, cause your children to lose heart. This can happen to well-meaning parents. You want to raise your child in obedience and righteousness. You don't want them to rebel. I think fathers especially need to consider this. Paul picks on the fathers in Colossians and Ephesians. He calls out the fathers. Maybe as a father, you're more of a man of law, not grace. Being a strict disciplinarian comes naturally to you. You smother your children with rules. You're always correcting them. But meanwhile, times of affection and care are few and far between. You're really just like a drill sergeant. You're always finding some way to correct your kids, never really showing them a lot of love. That continues forever because, well, they're never going to be perfect. There's always something to correct. But realize, although you might win their outward obedience through brute force and discipline, you might end up breaking their spirit. You might find from them obedience out of fear, but you might lose obedience out of love and devotion. You might even find a secret, silent rebellion simmering under the surface in their hearts. Many children become exasperated by these types of conditions in the home, and they get to the point of just breaking. You might not even notice it, but in their hearts, they're just counting down the days till they turn 18, and they can be free from the Iron Curtain and just leave and go away. But fathers especially, be careful. We need to heed this warning. I think we're more prone to this one. You might be tempted to think that, that the law is the answer to your child's rebellious heart. I mean, we talked a big talk of discipline last week. That's all true. But don't misunderstand. The law is not the answer. If you're all law and no grace, you might gain an outward conformity, but end up fostering an, an inner rebellion in their heart through exasperation. It's up to fathers to create an atmosphere in the home That atmosphere should be grace, not law. Yet we're going to use the law a lot. God's law and then vis-a-vis parental law to direct our children, to correct them, to point them to righteousness. Yes, we will use discipline and instruction to correct them and guide them often. But all these have to be drenched in love and care, understanding, affection. We have to be men of grace. In practice, a lot of this means that we're always going to bring the gospel of Christ into our parenting. We want our children to know and experience what we have, namely, constant failure to obey God's laws. That's us. We're God's children, but as his children, we constantly disobey and rebel against him. It's in our nature. God would be right 
to just harshly judge us. But he chose to set his love on us. In that love, he sent Christ to die for us. Jesus died and rose to to save sinners like us. That was the proof of the Father's love for us. And that love remains on us because even as we're believers, we still sin. But God is is still so long-suffering with us and patient and gracious. He simply set his unconditional abiding love on us to treat us not according to his law, but according to his grace. And yeah, he, he might still discipline us. He surely will. But even that's a measure of love, like Hebrews twelve six, that, that God the Father disciplines those whom he loves. It's an act of love to correct. But even still, he assures us in his word that his smile never departs from us. God secures us in his love that comes by grace. He assures us that in Christ, he's with us. He's for us forever. And do you see what effect that assurance of love has? It it draws us to God, whereby we respond to him in love too. We love him and now we want to obey him, not because he's making us under threat of punishment, but because we just, we love him. We, We see his ways are good. We want to obey him. And that's the, the, the ultimate place we want to get with our kids to do the same thing. It's so important for fathers, especially to be men of grace, men who have, have tasted and been transformed by the saving grace of God, that they might thereafter deal graciously with their children. We'll talk more about that next week, what it looks like to implement grace in the home. But at the very least, that can be a correction to, to not be overdoing Discipline, to get to that point of a, an excessive type of discipline that is all law, no, no grace. But just ask yourself, perhaps, is this what's been missing in your parenting? It's good and right for us, all of us, to frequently check ourselves and examine ourselves. How are we parenting? How are we using our authority? How are we dealing with our children? Are we taking discipline too far? Are we falling into the, some of these other traps? Are we all law, no grace? Are we exasperating them and discouraging them? The answer to agree is yes, like all of us are. uh, As parents, we all fall short. We ourselves still have the sinful flesh, right? We still have in ourselves as parents, selfish desires in our hearts. And sometimes that leads us to act according to not what is best for our children, but just what's best for us, what's easiest, what's most convenient, just our interests are in mind. We've been given God's own authority, delegated to us, used to raise up our children. We are meant to exercise it all for their good. We don't always do that, though, and all of us at times can fall short and and fall into provoking them to anger or discouraging them. But if I can leave you with a final thought or encouragement, I would say that a healthy dose of love is one of the surest antidotes to all of these means of exasperation. Just think about us and God. Isn't that what keeps us from being exasperated in our relationship with God? We have God as a father. That sounds nice, but that's also a terrifying thing. His holiness is extreme. He demands perfection. We cannot ever give him that on this side of eternity. So it's very easy for you to think that you are constantly displeasing God. 
But really, the only thing that keeps us from being crushed by God's holy presence is that in the gospel, we've been convinced of his overwhelming love for us, but, but he loves us. We fall short, but he loves us. We're, we're sinners, but he loves us. We might need discipline, but he loves us. We know that because he sent Christ for us. What more could he possibly do to demonstrate his love for you? But it's this love that gives us the confidence we need to keep walking before him, that we're in his family. He's not going to kick us out of this family. It's not possible for us to be unadopted from his family. But it's that love that draws out our love in return. And that becomes the, the ultimate motive for obedience as worship. Where now we choose to walk in his ways because we love him. He doesn't have to make us do anything. We do it because we love him. Replying this to parenting, just ask yourself then, are you assuring your kids of your love for them? That will counteract all the ways you may have exasperated them. That, that will really go a long way. Are you just assuring them of your love for them? Or maybe have you failed to make them secure in your unconditional love? Just as an exercise, ask yourself, how do your kids see you? Maybe ask yourself, have your, have your spouse evaluate you, weigh in? How do they view you? Do they see you as some distant lawgiver? You're like God up on the mountain who never comes down. They can't approach the holy mountain for fear of wrath. Do they walk on eggshells around you? When you speak from the heights, is it only to lay down the law and discipline? There's a time and a place for that. But the reason they're not crushed by that is because otherwise you're, you're near them. You're with them. You're close to them. You love them. Think about how you can better communicate love to your kids. Maybe as a father, perhaps, or even a mother. If you have hard times just verbalizing those words, I love you, to your kids. Uh, get over it. They need to hear that. You need to say that. You need to express that. If all they get from you is the rod of correction and never words of affection, why shouldn't they doubt your love? Don't assume that they know this. Reassure them in word and in deed. And speaking of, give your kids affection. You know, show physical affection and warmth and closeness. Show deeds of love where you lay down your life for them. I mean, we can think about how God the Father laid down the life of his son for us, how far he went to show us his love. And we need to, to likewise think about how in word and deed we can just demonstrate our love for them. You do that and then just wait and see how that over time might impact their obedience. And maybe just, just maybe that they'll start following your lead happily because they're convinced you love them, you're good, you're just, you're looking out for them, you really care about them, you have their best interests in mind, and, and you're with them. You're on the same team. You're a family. All of us parents... I think fathers especially need to take Paul's warnings here in heart, stemming from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, these admonitions to parents, especially fathers. Our life in the home should be different. You've been given new life in Christ. You've received the love of God, having been made new. And let the grace of God reshape you and, and even reshape your parenting. It's never too late to turn that new leaf and just resolve to be different and to grow. As you're more conformed to Christ's image, let that affect your parenting. Just show them Christ in word and deed and example. And just, just watch how 
how the love of God will transform your home. I read you to read, uh, let me read for you as we leave. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. For Paul says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good, uh, good work and word. We need to rest in God's own comfort and strength and then apply that, apply ourselves to parenting. Well, join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we, we thank you for our time in, the, in your word this evening and, and that we get to catch a glimpse of you and be reminded here at the end of, of our heavenly Father, a, a perfect Father that we have over us who has made us as your children. And though we were lost and astray like the prodigal, we ran away from you. You sent your, your, uh, your true son for us and to redeem us, to restore us, to bring us back. And as we come back, by your grace, you accept us with open arms. You, you show us an unconditional love. You adopt us into your true family and, uh, and draw us to yourself. We are thankful for this overwhelming display of love that we have in Christ. That, that's what we need to walk before you. Because we see your radical holiness. We, like Peter, we, we can't come close. Like Isaiah, we put our hand over our mouth. We can't dare approach you. Only because you've assured us of your love, though, we can with confidence. Lord, we need this as our model for parenting to, to uh, reflect that with our kids, to convince them of our love for them. Because while we do love them, they are our flesh. We want what's best for them. Keep us free from these errors. This evening, I pray our eyes have been opened, just brought to the forefront some ways we can stumble, or perhaps our own flesh, our own sinful desires can take us astray, that can... Lead us to do things that might tempt our children, provoke them to anger, put a stumbling block in their path, dishearten them. We don't ever want to do that, uh, but sometimes we do. We are sinners too. We thank you for your grace to us. May we show them grace and just help us, Lord, as we said, to double our efforts, to excel still more in following Christ and just living Christ before our children. Empower us by your spirit. We need your grace for this task. We thank you for your grace. Help all of us here to be men and women, mothers, and fathers of that grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.